So I'm here with John Byers today. Hello, John. Introduce yourself for us, please. Oh, hi, Sophia. Yeah. Um, well, my name's John Byers, and uh, I'm a partner in an international law firm called Osborne Clark. And for my sins, I lead the firm's International Artificial Intelligence and Machine Learning Group, which is a collective of legal experts that... Um, advise clients on all sorts of interesting convoluted issues that arise in relation to the use and licensing of artificial intelligence technologies. And uh, I get to travel quite a lot as a result because we have a very international client base. So a lot of my clients are based out on the uh, west coast of the States in Silicon Valley. We can imagine a lot of the leading um, AI solutions are being developed as well as um, across Europe. So that's me really. And tell us, you're an author as well, aren't you? You've written two books. Uh, they're called Artificial, Artificial Intelligence, The Practical Legal Issues. So tell us about those books as well. Yeah, yeah. So they don't exactly trip off the tongue. It's not going to be the uh, the latest Jackie Collins, but um, they are um, two, two books. The first is uh, AI, The Practical Legal Issues, which is my own book, which uh, is now in its second edition. And... Uh, I'm struggling manfully with a third edition, which will hopefully be, the manuscript will be complete um, in the summer, um, which is going to take into account the uh, the new European Union Artificial Intelligence Act, um, as well as hopefully uh, UK regulatory developments on artificial intelligence, uh, if the UK government uh, finally gets around to publishing its AI governance white paper. And that book is really a kind of 50,000 foot view of the kinds of problems, legal problems that uh, use and deployment licensing of AI can, can bring. And it's specifically directed at uh, those who have an interest in those legal and commercial issues. And uh, the second publication is... Uh, AI, a Laura Overboarders Comparative Guide, which again is, is uh, well, it's in its first edition and uh, hopefully that will roll forward. Um, we've got a plan to kind of update that every year or so. Um, and that's been written with my colleagues and Osborne Clark um, across Europe and also some eminent uh, other global practitioners. And what we're trying to do in that book is give a snapshot of what's happening in each country in relation to AI regulation, because what a lot of people don't know is that um, AI is on the cusp of being very heavily regulated. And um, a lot of your listeners will have heard of the GDPR, which is the General Data Protection Regulation, which mm -hmm. is the law that the wide ranging law that the European Union put in place to regulate data, personal data in particular. Well, what the EU is doing uh, and several other countries are doing is putting in place very similar legislation to regulate the use of machine learning and artificial intelligence. So, um, you know, my lesson to, to to those of your listeners who are thinking to thinking about using and implementing AI on an enterprise basis is to really wise up to the fact that regulation is around the corner. It's going to become very costly to actually comply with that regulation. Yeah, so interestingly, I've just seen an, an article in The Guardian about Meta's de massive data leak that recently happened when it's trying to develop the, the chat GPT. They're trying to de develop their own version of it. And it says about how it may potentially even 
democratize AI. What do you think about that? Is that part of what you're you're looking into with your new book? Um, well, I think the the data breach issue is a, is a different is a different um, is a different regulatory concern that um, not just Meta but other businesses will have in relation to um, the the leaking of of personal data, and that specifically in the European Union, that would be something that would be covered by. Uh, the, the GDPR and there are laws in the United States that cover that as well. Um, I'm not certain it has the uh, as that that has a sort of follow-on impact to democratization. I think what's happening really is that uh, we're all becoming fascinated by uh, textual interfaces like ChatGPT, which are purporting to bring artificial intelligence to the masses. And I guess that would be something that could be argued uh, to be a tool that will make AI um, available to all. But that is a that that interface comes with um, quite a significant health warning um, in terms of the potential regulatory burden that you'll be you'll be undertaking if you use it. And not a lot of people understand that. I think a lot of people are very. Um, and I have been as well bewitched by the the the, uh, the richness of the interaction that you get with using something like ChatGPT. And I don't know whether you've actually used it, Sophia. But um, well, funnily it... enough, I did ask it to ask you a question today. Oh <laughs> so right, oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> I was just um, intrigued whether it can do a better job than me, but um, it turns out yeah. it can. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, in some in some respects, yeah. But it it you know the question that you asked about Meta is 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 an interesting one because it does in a sense bring to light the two issues that are always going to be the in the forefront of a lawyer, a regulatory lawyer's mind in this space, which is the the regulatory position of AI and the regulatory position of data. And they are a tangled spider's web of regulation. And not a, you know, if you're using AI that processes personal data, then you're going to have not only the AI regulation, whether that's the AIA in the European Union, the Artificial Intelligence Act in the European Union, or potentially the Algorithmic Accountability Act in the States, or the AI and Data Act in Canada. But you're also going to be dealing with underlying data, data regulation. And getting it wrong has pretty severe financial consequences because both the GDPR and the AIA have, well, when the AIA is enacted, have very high uh, financial penalties in worst case scenarios for breaching breaching their obligations. Let's just take this back. What is AI? Right. Okay. Um, very good question. Uh, well, I like to think of AI as the ensemble term. It's the kind of collective descriptive term for a bunch of very clever technologies. And if you kind of conceptualize Sophia and an onion uh, with different layers, AI is the kind of the wrapper, the top of the top, the top skin of the onion. Uh, and within that, you'd have very clever technologies that not that that are potentially uh, assistive of uh, machine learning, which is really what loads of people uh, think of as artificial intelligence. We'll get to that in a moment. But it are, you know, white box systems like classification 
decision trees or um, Bayesian networks, which use Bayesian mathematics to work out what they should know from what they don't know. And don't ask me to explain that further because I'm not a mathematician. <laughs> but basically, those Bayesian systems are used to complex uh, to model complex chaotic environments, mm -hmm. typically. Um, things like uh, crowd movements or or or, or um, um, uh, variable lots of, um, dynamic variable environments that are very difficult to compute otherwise so you've got that sort of layer and then in within that you've got um, machine learning which is what everyone thinks of as AI which is um, the, the, the really clever piece of technology. And that's not something that um, many people think that's a relatively new technology. It's not new. It was first conceptualized in 1952 by a guy called Marvin Minsky. They just didn't have the technology to actually scale it into anything meaningful. And that was essentially computing uh, a computing structure that was very crudely modeled on the human brain with, with different neural levels of processing. And what we have in modern times is deep machine learning, which is really where the exciting stuff happens. And that's at the core of the onion. And that is taking uh, Minsky's um, machine learning uh, and taking it to a different level, scaling it with modern computing power. And the really extraordinary thing about machine learning, uh, and it's a sort of, fundamental kind of conceptual issue about it is that even though data scientists uh, and then computer architects can create these deep machine learning models in any given situation where the machine learning model is coming up with a decision we still don't know in any given circumstance how or why that machine learning system came to the conclusion that it did and that's a function of its complexity. So you can set up a neural network, a very deep neural network, but you, what you can't do is understand, at least with a very deep uh, neural network, how or why it came to that conclusion. It's very, very difficult to do that. And that's why they're called black boxes. They, they're inherently opaque. And... Um, it's a bit like uh, applying the same sort of rationale to um, to you if you are making a decision. Yeah. Um, you can. Uh, we're not going to know precisely which synapses and which neurons fired in your brain to reach a particular conclusion, but you will reach an output. Typically, it's an ex post facto output. You'll rationalise what you've decided after the event. But um, in any event, it will be a on a range of probabilities. Your decision will be on a range of probabilities, some of which are uh, rational and normal, and some of which are on the bounds of what would be rationality. And that's very much a feature of machine learning systems as well. So the art of a data scientist as well is to tune machine learning so that the outputs are within the kind of apex of a bell curve. They're not edge case decisions. They're not weird to use a yeah. kind of colloquial term yeah. and to give you to give you That's an example funny. yeah mm -hmm. that would be a situation where you know a tesla car decides for for no apparent reason and there would clearly be a reason but no apparent reason to steer off the road or and into a crash barrier or, or into a truck and it might be because it's confused the white side of a truck with a gray sky and that's why it's done that yeah. but um what you can't, you can try and tune out these edge case decisions with machine learning systems. What you cannot 
remove them completely. Um, so we've created and, something we don't fully understand. Exactly. Is, yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's a bit like magic, you know. Yeah. Um, it comes up with amazing results and amazing outputs, and um, it's inherently so complex that we can't understand how it got to those conclusions. Um, and that creates all sorts of issues for regulatory lawyers and actually for the law, because um, any decision that has legal consequences, you need to be able to justify, you need to be able to. So if, if it's a decision that's been made by a machine that has real consequences on the individual, such as a decision not to grant a mortgage or a decision not to grant citizenship or not to um, not to give you a job or to discard your CV, these all have fundamental rights attached to them. Mm. And it's very difficult to justify the use of artificial intelligence or machine learning systems in those situations because it's very difficult to explain how those systems came to those conclusions. Now, I would say, by caveat, I'm talking about the most complex, opaque, and deep neural networks. There are lots and lots, as you can imagine, of industry dollars that are being thrown at trying to create what's called XAI or explainable AI. Um, but what's really interesting about these explainer systems, which are systems that tend to moderate the core explainer system, is that they reduce the efficiency of the underlying machine learning system. So you can get to explainable AI, but they're not as powerful as the opaque systems. Okay. So researchers are wrestling with that um, at the moment. And it doesn't really solve the regulatory issue because there are, all, there are all sorts of compliance hurdles that in particular the European Union are putting in place to regulate artificial intelligence and ha having an in interpolating explainer system is not really going to solve those problems because it would be subject to exactly the same regulatory constraints as the core AI system. And it is a machine learning system as well. So you can see how it gets into a kind of philosophical feedback loop where you're not actually solving a regulatory issue. You might be making it a little bit explainable, but it's not it's not it's not assisting you getting to a clarity on a on a machine learning decision. Sorry, that was a bit of a kind of long and windy path, but hopefully that kind of you followed yeah. that. It's fascinating. I mean, this is the thing that should we be afraid of AI? Because it's unpredictable still, but so powerful, uh, is this something that we need to be scared of in terms of ethics and global human rights? Um, I, I'm not certain scared is um, the right term. I would say we need to be mindful of it. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think the best way to kind of rationalize machine learning systems and a lot of people, as I said, are bewitched by tools such as chat GPT. Um, uh, and just see this kind of cogent, uh, long-form prose coming out of it and think, oh, wow, this machine's conscious. It's not conscious. It's, um, it's a function of very sophisticated mathematics. It's a function of statistical probabilities. What ChatGPT is throwing up is a function of the data that it's looked at and also how statistically probable those sentences are that they would be strung together. There is no guiding intelligence underneath it. And there, therefore, there is no um, consciousness or if, if, you know, if you were going to go into the Terminator scenario, there's no <laughs> underlying 
or Skynet, no underlying malevolence. Um, we are a long way away from what's called AGI or automated general intelligence uh, okay. or artificial general intelligence. It's, uh, it's, that is the kind of holy grail of uh, those kinds of systems. And my view is that there's still a long way to go because as human beings, our consciousness is developed as a function of the richness of our human lives, our um, experiences as living human beings with emotions, with interactions, with the world, with our families, with our loved ones. These are the things that drive our intellect and our consciousness. And a disembodied machine find it very, very difficult to have that interaction. It has no body. It has no ability to interact in a meaningful way with the real world. It's all, um, it's all kind of locked up in a, in a, in a piece of hardware, isn't it? Uh, and software. Mm. Um, Is, what's so, different between Google and chat GPT? There's nothing different with it. No? It's nothing okay. different. No, it's it's a machine learning system. So actually, you know, having said that, there's no consciousness, there's no kind of underlying kind of guiding light within them, but they are very, very powerful systems. So yes, we do need to be very mindful of the impacts that they could have in relation to our human rights. And that, to its credit, that's what the European Union is doing in relation to the Artificial Intelligence Act. It's saying that if you're going to use what's called high-risk AI in the European Union, and that could be something like, uh, I don't know, using it in the administration of justice or um, for insurance underwriting or for the provision of finance um, or, you know, police work or whatever. Uh, then um, you need to run what's known as a fundamental rights impact assessment. So you need to balance the rights of the individuals that will be prejudiced as a result of its usage with the benefits to society. Okay. So what they're trying to do is build in, they're trying to answer your question, Sophia, in the regulatory structure, which is you just, if you can, if you want to use it in a high risk sense, you need to justify it societally and individually, you need to justify it, which I think is the right way to go. Yeah. I mean, is there a benefit to AI? Because obviously you've got some jobs which require you to be, less biased so do you think it will help with those jobs and sort of get rid of the mundane parts of the job that you don't enjoy and you get to then focus more on the parts that actually require the emotional side or the the bias it it, it might it, it might it might be uh, yes absolutely there are, there are there are real benefits to it but don't forget i mean if we go let's let's would it, I'll just make one comment on the bias track because, again, there's, there's an often kind of quoted fallacy, which is that machine learning systems help to avoid bias, and that's not not the case. They are the, fundamentally the tools of human beings, and they, are, they use data sets which have been created and cur curated by human beings. And if you don't create and curate those data sets, properly, then the biases that are within them will be translated into the outputs of the machine learning system. That's a very real issue. And to give you an example, um, Google Translate was or is one of the most powerful um, machine learning systems in the world. It, it uh, used um, thousands and thousands of millions of texts to actually develop an understanding uh, of 
uh, human language to enable it to translate. It wasn't given a didactic sort of rules-based framework. It learned it for its front for itself as a machine learning system would do. And in doing, in reviewing all of these texts, it looked at texts which are thousands of years old. And one of the one of the most fundamental texts that it picked up on was the Bible, which is very old, mm. uh, and various other sort of medieval texts. And these texts imported cultural biases, which were very out of date, into its outputs. So uh, Google realized that. So um, it's been fixed now, obviously. But one of the uh, one of the one of the more apparent and slightly entertaining kind of examples of that was if you had a gender-neutral language, say in Finnish, you you said to Google Translate, and you translated it from Finnish to English and back to Finnish, and you said, um, for example, you wanted it to say. Um, he is a nurse it would come back with she is a nurse if you said um she is an engineer it would come back with he is an engineer not good at all he is lazy came back with she is lazy so obviously this is this is this is really unpalatable stuff and yeah. um and google had to had to change that and thankfully it did but it, the only way it could do that and I, I listened to a very interesting talk by google's chief engineer for translate and said the only way they had to do that was to put in another machine learning system to moderate the output of the first machine learning system and to provide alternatives so to, to detect potentially when biases were coming through so that's a very real issue mm. But that that was a little digression into bias. The other the other demonstrable value, the flip side of these systems being opaque, is you get uh, what, in the words of the great Alexander Fleming, he, what, what he said was that you sometimes get what you're not looking for when you use these systems. So uh, Mount Sinai Hospital, for example, um, ran a, a, a study. Uh, on uh, on some of its patients and just without any great expectation gave something called deep patient which was its machine learning system or some patient records of thousands of patient records to review and in the process of reviewing those records it became um, adept at diagnosing adult schizophrenia which human doctors can't diagnose so i don't know how or why going back to my earlier point it it obtained that ability to diagnose adult schizophrenia but what it did do was create a demonstrable benefit for society because now we have a tool that can diagnose schizophrenia in adults which humans can't do they don't know how it got to it but they've got it so that gives you an example of the benefits of these systems which are you know which can be which can be magical but they do need to be um supervised they do need to be moderated very carefully yeah, so coming back to the bias, when you do get to the middle of the onion and you create that AI system which is emotionally intelligent and is making decisions like a human would, how do you then stop populations being discriminated or marginalised because of certain situations? So, for example, if an AI system decided, well, anyone who isn't useful within society when it comes to helping society in a certain way, do you think an AI system will then be able to say no they're not useful anymore you know goodbye like is there a point where it could take control of society and think for us when... I, I i hope not i hope yeah. not i mean i think actually it's these very concerns which have prompted this wave uh, this tidal wave of regulation which is going to hit very shortly you know the mm -hmm. european union 
AIA, the Artificial Intelligence Act, is is imminent. I know there's some debate in the European Parliament at the moment about some of the more detailed measures. But it is very, very important, certainly to Western democracies, that the, this technology is constrained and is never put in a position where it can make those decisions. There are um, some worrying examples. Um, I wouldn't say in any society they've actually given the keys to the to get to government to a machine learning system. I think that would be going a little bit too far. Mm-hmm. But um, in, for example, China, there is a mass social scoring scheme which is uh which is obviously very technologically driven and i don't know you've heard of that but you know if you throw a cigarette butt on a platform then it means you can't get the lowest interest rate on a mortgage and and you know things like that you're penalized for antisocial behavior um and also well you have a you have a social score you have a you have a it's like a giant uh you know a national um score which is held centrally and um if it goes below a certain level you can't travel first class on a train it's all sorts of things like that um and that's one use of ai that has been specifically mass social scoring has been specifically outlawed by the um european union uh forthcoming artificial intelligence act it's not it's inimical to western society it's not the sort of direction that we want want to travel in we are democratic societies Mm. we are never going to give machine learning systems that kind of control over society uh or you know using automated facial recognition which is another form of um, artificial intelligence to detect uh felons uh, criminals. So they've done that in China as well. So what they've done is they've flown drones over football stadiums, and they've used very clever AFR automated facial recognition and de-aging algorithms. So they'll have had a photograph of someone who you know is uh, you know all the 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 it was taken thirty years ago, and they'll fly, fly over a stadium and they'll pick out an individual, uh, apply this sort of take a photograph match it and arrest someone and that's what they've done um there was a note there was a notable case a few years back where they did that they arrested someone um applying that technique so yeah it's getting advanced and that's the thing even with things like speeding tickets and you know they could end up using that so you can't get away with anymore slowing down just before the the camera oh you'd be you'd be surprised i mean there or maybe not but there you know there are there are techniques which um i'm not sure whether this would be particularly legal in the european union but certainly an american startup a few years back was using facial recognition for life insurance underwriting and typically when you uh, when you buy a life insurance policy what you do is uh, you fill in a very long questionnaire and you explain all of your health conditions and um then your premium is priced up. Your, you know, the, the risk risk of life is kind of priced up, and you get your policy. What this what this company did was you take a selfie, and the algorithm would look at your face, and it could tell immediately from your selfie from one image whether you were a smoker, how how much alcohol you drank, what um, congenital conditions you were likely to have, uh, and that was just by taking. A, fic- a picture of your face and working out from that what your net life expectancy was going to be and apparently far more accurately than filling in a questionnaire which is extraordinary isn't it absolutely extraordinary do you think then law will need to become more regionalized because obviously is the world the world is very global right now 
But then if you introduce AI that other people in other countries might not. So for example, if we get used to in Europe, the European laws when it comes to AI, and then we want to go and visit China and then we are nervous about being penalized for, you know, doing something wrong. How do you think that works in terms of law and making, do we need like a global law when it comes to AI? What about, you know, yeah, I mean, there's a, yeah, well, there's a really, well, there are obviously international treaties which allow uh, countries to cooperate um, and criminal cooperation is is one of the bigger one of the bigger areas of cooperation. But mm-hmm. um, law law has always been paro- inherently parochial. We've always always had a, a, a very regionalized approach to law. But I, I would tend to agree with you, which is that you know these these issues are so serious and so fundamentally. Uh, uh, what's the word? Fundamentally potentially damaging to human rights that we ought to cooperate and ought to create a unifying framework on the way in which um, this technology is regulated. Mm. The problem that we've got, Sophia, is that we are obviously in a heterogeneous world where different values, different cultures, different cultural norms, um, different systems of government apply. And clearly, we don't all share the same value sets. And ultimately, the usage of technology boils down to ethical concerns as well as law. What is right and what is wrong? What is right in China is very different to what is right in the United States. And what is right in Iran is obviously very different to what is right in the United Kingdom. So you can see how we've got a very much, uh, and obviously Afghanistan, very different. So you can see we've got a a very big hill to climb if we're going to have a kind of unifying approach to these technologies. And actually what's going to happen, and I'm a bit of a cynic with this, is that you'll see Western societies that uphold the values of democracy focusing on fundamental human rights and impact assessments, making certain that their citizens aren't prejudiced by the use of these technologies, amplifying their societal values. So, you know, the democracies will reinforce their democratic values, but equally speaking, the non-democracies, the dictatorships, the demagogues, the Putins of the world will use these technologies to further their own ends. And that makes life in those countries in particular a very scary place to be and the what i struggle with is that in a sense we are and it's it's admirable that we are applying these guardrails to the use of these technologies but these the other countries that i'm speaking of the non-democracies the you know the Iran's, the Russia's, the China's don't have these safeguards. And as a result, they can go ahead and do things that we would never contemplate. And the big scary thing is that these technologies are being used significantly now in the context of espionage and electronic warfare. And the concern would be that because they don't have any guardrails around the use of these technologies, they can develop something which is more effective than we possibly could. And uh, what we don't want is them winning the information wars and having uh, an edge on the functionality of these technologies over over us. Really, it's a it's a it's a fundamental fundamental, a very significant problem. Yeah, especially because 
you know, when it comes to criminal gangs and things, if they have got that ability to explore, obviously they might not have, I don't know, the the resources that big, large countries do. But if, you, if you've got so much regulation in place in those countries, it ends up that you then become the inferior in terms of development it could yeah quite... and, and this is an argument that has been raging in the united kingdom was obviously since brexit we're not tied to the european union um we don't have to and we won't be implementing the european artificial intelligence act which we would have had to have done as part of europe and the argument the argument there is precisely the point you're making which is that it, it potentially gives us a a head start uh, over the European Union, potentially an economic benefit to not, uh, uh, I use the term, over-regulate these technologies um, because the potential impact of the European law is that it will have a chilling, it's a great law, but it will have a chilling impact on investment on the development of artificial intelligence within the European Union. Um, if you over-regulate, you potentially push the development elsewhere uh, i can see that the benefits in that argument um but equally speaking there is a need a clear need to regulate the technology and the europe the, sorry the uk is moving to regulate it just won't provide this sort of top-down unitary approach it's going to be looking at it well we think because the paper hasn't been released yet but it's going to be looking at it on sector by sector basis so the financial services sector will have an approach medicine will have an approach professional services potentially will have an approach to the regulation of artificial intelligence and they will be what's called light touch rather than a you know a one single unitary measure so how fast are we talking here because a long time ago um uh, during university i worked at ibm and we learned about uh different types of intelligence that was coming through. Um, but one technology that always fascinated me was the idea of going up into the stratosphere in an aeroplane and coming back down and landing in uh, Australia from England in half an hour's time. And I remember that was quite like a developed technology back in the day and and, and it was all, that's gonna come out soon. And I mean, it's been 13 years and I still haven't seen anything come out that's anywhere near like that. So, I mean, we talk about all of this stuff, but how, quickly do you think it's actually going to develop into our society well i think it's happening already and in ways which are possibly surprising um you know it, it's it's becoming the it's, it's pretty much becoming the new norm and certainly you know, in your daily interaction, you probably every day you probably interact with an AI system. If you deal with if you're contacting your bank to do online banking or a call center, you're dealing with an AI system. Um, I uh, I worked with a client that um, has developed an, a, a call center sentiment detection system. So uh, quite why they need this is another matter. But you know, if you phone up a call center angry, the AI will work out that you're angry. Um, <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, what, and it will hang do... up the phone. What happened? Well, no, it just reports. So it provides a centralized reporting mechanism, so that all the customer services agents are following the scripts and everything. And uh, but um, you know, it's being used in, in all sorts of ways. So there's a difference between that the, the this kind of technology, I would say, which is which is very much a sort of um, 
something that can be developed within the framework of an existing computer it just needs data as opposed to one of these heroic extraordinary technologies for you know stratospheric flight which requires years and years and years of physical R&D and physical testing the frameworks that we've got for machine learning are there they just need to be refined Um, and the systems are becoming more and more capable they still have all they still have their issues they still have their problems I mean one thing that um, you know OpenAI has not yet resolved with ChatGPT is, you know, ChatGPT uses a web crawler to run over the internet and reviews texts as part of its training data to, to train itself. And as a result of that is using texts which are potentially copyrighted, which are, you know, subject to intellectual property rights. And it's not clear whether OpenAI, who runs ChatGPT, need to pay the providers of those texts licensing revenues to actually use their texts. And there are class action lawsuits going on in the moment in the United States trying to establish that point. Um, yeah, because a lot of, um, I've heard that students are now using chat GPT to write their essays for them. Yeah, well, this is another example of someone, people ch- checking common sense at the door. Um, mm. It's not, you know, I mean, it's it's very clever, and it's as I said, it's bewitching. It's extraordinary what it what it can produce. But if you push it really hard, and uh, I have a colleague that um, has 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 given ChatGPT. Well, there's a 17 page analysis of ChatGPT's responses. If you push it really hard and try and get to an answer, you can see how circular some of its responses actually are. It's a very, very interesting analysis, how circular and repetitive. And what it does is it demonstrates how limited the materials are that it's been using to be to 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 train itself. Um, and the other feature of chat GPT, which is very worrying, and speaking as a lawyer, and this is a feature of its the way in which it works, because remember it's a statistical probability engine. It, it matches the probability statistically of sentences and words to each other to create the most probable linkages. It's not capable of providing verified sources at the moment. So if you're a student and you ask it to write a fully referenced essay, some of those references will be absolutely correct and some of them will be completely fabricated. And that's just the way it works. And actually the, the worrying thing is you ask it to write a new story it will blend fact with fiction in an entirely arbitrary way. And that's just a function of the way in which the system is structured, the way in which it's architected. That's the way machine learning works. Um, And you will not get the same answer to the same question two times running. Again, another feature of machine learning, and it manifests as well in um, image generation uh, AI tools. I don't know whether you've ever used um, Midjourney or um, Dali or Stable Diffusion. And they're incredible, incredible um, AI tools. But you type in a text prompt. So you ask for a sunlit beach, 
with a boat on the shore, it will produce, or as a photograph, it will produce a photorealistic image for you, which is entirely machine learning generated. Or you can do it as a cartoon, or you could do it as a Van Gogh painting, and it will it will produce that. But it will never produce the same image two times running. So consistency or lack of consistency is a real problem with these systems. Um, they can produce stuff that's articulate, but it's totally inconsistent and it's full of fabrications. So for those reasons, it's not yet ready to be used in anger for client work or indeed by any credible academic student. Mm. Um, well, what about for artists? What makes, you know, what's going to happen to artists if we can create a new painting every single time just from one? Well, that's again, that's a, that's another worry. And again, you know, these uh these a these ai image generation tools are again the subject of class action lawsuits from the very artists that have because in order to get to that level of functionality those machine learning tools need to review those pictures mm. they need to look at those pictures and understand how they were created and they form part of their data sets and they take elements from those pictures and create their own pictures so what they're doing is they're creating derivative works using the core works to create their own work. So there again, there are law, class action lawsuits where those original artists are saying, oh, in a minute, that's our work that you've been using to create your output. You've got to pay us something. So these are issues which are currently being settled at the moment. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's real, it's current, isn't it? And I mean, I used chat GPT today <laughs> to ask, I just wanted to see if it came up with more questions than, I mean, it took five seconds for it to come up with 10 questions. Um, All right. <laughs> that were far more I'll take a drink. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you every single one, I promise. <laughs> but I'll ask you one of them because it is, it is interesting. What do you see as the biggest potential applications of AI in the business world? In the business world? Quite a wordy question, isn't it? It's not yeah. something you'd want sort of in the middle of a podcast, really. <laughs> Um, it is an interesting question. I mean, I think personally speaking, the biggest application is not in the business world. I think it's in the in the field of medicine and science. I think the ability of a machine learning system to predict um, or to work out how to cure um, a particular disease through, I don't know, genomic analysis or genomic modeling um, is going to be something and is something that uh, I think is extraordinary. And I think these technologies, it, you know, these t use for these technologies in the application space should be encouraged because that's provided a demonstrable benefit to society. Um, I, uh, I struggle to see how else, I mean, I'll, I'll have a think about that, Sophia, because it's quite a, quite a deep question, but in the world of business and commerce, I think, it, machine learning and artificial intelligence will simply provide or facilitate the will help people carry conduct conduct uh, conduct uh, commerce and make it make it smoother um so i don't i don't uh, don't potentially see any breakthroughs of the kind that i've just explained in relation to medicine and life sciences mm -hmm. um and but what I do see, and I'm possibly digressing actually, is is um, a situation where these technologies can relieve us from the more commoditized aspects of 
business and whatever the, the application is, which I think is something that you were saying earlier on, it will release us to move more up the value chain to deal with the more human relationship aspects of business, whereas the more commoditized elements will be handled by machines, mm -hmm. um, which hopefully will make our jobs inherently more interesting. Although the flip side is that if we've got machines doing loads of things for us i think there's a dumbing down effect in society yeah. so you know it's true i mean will we get yeah. them to think for us because we rely well, we on are already yeah, we are exactly. already yeah that's the uh, thing yeah oh. i mean uh you know back in my day because i'm an oldie <laughs> you need to you needed to remember telephone numbers so who remembers telephone numbers now my phone predicts what number i'm about to dial <laughs> i mean when i'm when i'm typing in my gmail interface my email interface is predicting what i'm i do find it really irritating it's predicting what i'm going to say in my email before i've actually typed it <laughs> <laughs> So the, oh, the capacity, of, yeah, capacity for independent thought is going to become diminished. Um, I think, you know, one of the other, it's sort of musing on your earlier question, one of the other areas I think it's going to be um, really transformative is um, in the context of entirely AI-generated entertainment. So we're already seeing AIs generating uh, music, so entirely machine-generated scores, uh, musical scores, when you, if I would encourage you to look at um, Mid Journey or Stable Diffusion or Dali, but when you look at the quality of the images that are being produced by these systems, I think that's going to create or open up a whole new market of AI-generated uh, TV and movie content. Uh, and what I mean by that is that everything will be generated by an artificial intelligence. The images will be generated, the music will be generated, the script will be generated, the dialogue will be generated by a machine. Uh, and again, that's a potential benefit for, for us. You'll be able to type in, I want to see a movie with Frank Sinatra and Grace Kelly set in Hawaii, and the system will generate it for you and score it and write it, and you'll be able to watch it for, for two hours. Um, I can't get my head around that. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> Wow. <laughs> but didn't they have an ABBA performance recently on stage? Where yeah, well, that's, AI? that's yeah, yeah, that's good. That's, uh, I don't know how, how much AI is involved in that. That's still going. Yeah, that, I can't remember what that's called. It's, um, that's where they de-age them all, isn't it? And they're on, on yeah. stage. Yeah. Um, it's going to be as fundamental as that. And I think there is an ex existential debate um, or, you know, a, a real inflection point for the entertainment industry that's coming. Um, it's going to be great on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's going to completely remove from society our, our desire or ability to create human writing and work and TV and movies, which I think is a, would be a tragedy if we hand all that to machines. Yeah, I think um, so. I'm hoping that actually our chaoticness as a society will act in our favour when machines take over and the unpredictableness of you know we'll, we'll relish in that one day rather than yeah, yeah yeah so what we'll see we'll see all these kind of creeping use cases that are going to become more and more evident it's a bit like a sort of bath filling up it'll become a bath before you know it the bath will be full it's not going to be one of these kind of directive suddenly you know an ai has been installed it's going to be taking over by not taking over but all these applications are going to be transferred to AI and before you know it virtually everything will be managed by AI <laughs> is there hope for the human race tell me that well I think so yeah I think so I think we're uh, yeah you're right I think we're chaotic unpredictable 
marvelous creatures and um i think we'll realize i'm, I'm you know maybe this is the glass half full part of me but i think we'll realize uh, before it gets too 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 bad um there's a there's a wonderful movie and again i'm dig digressing called idiocracy i don't know if you've seen that um about a guy that falls asleep in a in a cryogenic chamber and wakes up with you know a few thousand years later to find that everyone is so and he's got completely average intelligence everyone is so dumb that he's like the super genius and he ends up running the country because <laughs> they've got machines doing everything for them <laughs> i haven't seen that but i'm gonna watch that now <laughs> yeah it's hilarious it <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah, I like to think that's going to happen. Too. Well, yeah, not that we all become dumb, but we realise before that happens. <laughs> yeah, I hope <laughs> so. Once becomes. Yeah. <laughs> so as an inspirational person within the law world and the age of new technology, who is your inspiration? This is my final question to you. Who's my inspiration? Well, um, I think... My ultimate hero in this space is Alan Turing. He's um, he was obviously of a different age. Uh, he was an, an incredibly bright person uh, that did amazing things for the war effort, um, and was one of the precursors of artificial intelligence. But did so in a society which was demonstrably different from from our own, and suffered extraordinary prejudice as a result of that and um he really is one of these heroes and i'm so delighted that he's got his his um his portrait on a bank bank now but uh, he's one of these heroes that we just need to constantly celebrate um i think he's one of the people that um really makes our society a standout society so for, for me um i think alan turing is actually hugely or was uh, and remains hugely inspirational good answer <laughs> that came from the top of your head with no pause i mean that's brilliant <laughs> well thank you so much john for joining me you've been exceptional and my mind is blown so thank you for that this has been an absolute pleasure sophia thank you